welcome to Lots of Familiar, the show that remembers that when Status Quo appeared on Saturday Superstore to promote In the Army Now in 1986, they gave away Jeff's drum kit as a competition prize. I'm not entirely sure that they understood the audience demographic there. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that nobody else ever seemed to, is quiz expert David Smith. David! What you up to? Where can we find it? You can find me on Twitter at DVD Smith, where I'm mostly making terrible jokes. And you can also find me on Twitch at the same username, where I'm playing video games while also making terrible jokes. So, yeah, come and find me on those. Well, speaking of terrible jokes, it's a shame that you aren't actually at VHS Smith, because that would have given me a great lead into your first <laughs> choice. This was a tape that I had, and I played so much it probably got worn out. I don't know where it is now. I was looking for it the other day. Here's a bit from the start of it, and I'll explain why it sounds a bit weird after that. Our first team captain is the man uh, behind the eye a title previously bestowed only on Richard Ingrams and Cyclops please welcome Ian Hislop and uh, our other team captain is the inimitable the indomitable the indefatigable the inflatable Paul Merton Um, with, uh, with Ian tonight is, uh, ignore them, is an actor who is best known for his appearances uh, in One Foot in the Grave in his supporting role as my next door neighbour. Please welcome Richard Wilson. team captain that you like to look up. Uh, in which case, with Paul tonight, uh, will be our next uh, guest, uh, who is a comedian who can always be sure of finding work at the BBC, because he once trained as an accountant. Please welcome Eddie Izzard. <laughs> Okay, that was a noticeably out of character Angus Deaton introducing Paul Merton and Ian Hislop at the start of I Got News For You. And you might have thought it sounded a bit weird. Well, why is that, David? This was the first home video release of Have I Got News For You, which was called Have I Got Unbroadcastable News For You, which is a VHS exclusive episode of the show that came out in 1995 that marketed itself as being uncensored. And Angus Deaton's opening monologue on it says, Hello and welcome to Have I Got Unbroadcastable News For You. And our apologies to anyone who took the word unbroadcastable to mean that the content is too risky or libelous for BBC television, when in fact it's simply technically unbroadcastable. And then there's a gag about sort of the VHS starting to go. <laughs> yeah, this was kind of the first of the BBC comedy panel shows, kind of too hot for TV kind of releases. The interesting thing is that I watched it again last night, because like you, I had a VHS copy. And when we got rid of our last VHS, I taped it onto a DVD. So I've technically got a pirate copy of it, which I watched last night. And actually, it's surprising because they call it unbroadcastable and it's rather tame, actually. It really is. I remember being struck by that at the time. That, I mean, I think there's an F word here and there, but it doesn't really go in hard on anything. And the guests that they have on it aren't really the sort of people who would go in hard anyway. Yeah, so the guests on it are Richard Wilson and Eddie Izzard. And this was the first time I'd seen Eddie on anything. I wouldn't see any of Eddie's stand-up for a good 10, 11 years after that. It's actually, if you look at the cover of it, it's a 15. There's, yeah, there's 
quite a few F-words in it. There's one shot of a topless woman. But other than that, that's kind of it. And when you think about sort of 10 years after this, the BBC released Mock the Week Too Hot for TV, which was an 18 rating, mainly because of Frankie Boyle. But it's just, it's amazing the sort of things, and maybe it's just because of sort of the way that television has evolved now, because the jokes that they were doing on this supposedly unbroadcastable VHS is the sort of thing that Jimmy Carr now fires off every Friday night. So it was surprising, sort of, it's basically an extended Have I Got News For You episode just covering the news events of 1995. Yeah, I guess they had to call it unbroadcastable just to get people to buy it. Well, I'll come back to some of the actual contents of it in a minute that really do date it to 1995, but I actually think it was tamer than the regular editions were around then because I really remember how abrasive, how sharp Have I Got News For You seemed when it first started. Quick boring history lesson. Started in 1990. I remember seeing the first trailer for it with the three of them, which I don't think really had jokes in. And the first series sort of came and went. And then it was during the second one, late on in 1991, when it suddenly started to take off. It was almost like a secret on BBC Two that maybe people saw the end of when they tuned in for something else. Yeah, I remember people got really excited about the missing words round. It just suddenly took off then. I remember seeing Ian Hislop on a daytime TV show where the other guest was Barry Talk. I can't remember what the show was, unfortunately, but he was there to talk about the fact that Have I Got News For You was suddenly taking off and there were big features on it in the NME and Melody Maker. I remember Kathleen Moran was very keen on it. Andrew Collins was as well. My main memory of those days is it felt savage. It felt like it was saying the things that you wanted to say to, you know, the people in the news and you weren't able to. I remember being astonished by it. There was one edition where Ian Hislop appeared to be absolutely spitting bile almost through every word. And he said something about John Major and Paul Merton said, have a fight with him. Have a fight with him and put it on television. And Ian came back sort of, oh, can you imagine that? Would you like a fight, Prime Minister? Ah, uh, well, I don't know. But And then it turned <laughs> out Ian Hislop was due for an appendix operation straight after the recording. Yes. But they really, really were on fire for those first couple of years. And this is kind of, it's the culmination of that first burst of success because there were other bits of merchandise. Like there was the compilation video in 1993, which was really good, really well put together. There was the book, which I think was the following year, which there is some filler in it, but it's generally quite good. I mean, I love the page of endorsements and Paul Merton's endorsing an agricultural fungicide for some reason. <laughs> but this kind of, it just doesn't attack what was going on as much as a regular weekly edition would have done. Yeah, and I think partly of that is possibly because they are just sort of doing a kind of general, this is what happened in 1995 kind of thing. And I guess they don't want to retread old ground because if they are doing it week after week when it's in the news and when the politicians are whatever scandal is going on at the time they want to attack them then and there and you know obviously Ian Hislop's editing Private Eye so he's got the stories and all this so yeah I think when it's fresh in people's minds and it's part of the public discourse that's when they want to do the proper satire and this because it's a kind of special it's a lot more relaxed you know they don't have to worry about like they say the unbroadcastable means the content is too risky or libelous I mean there's not much libel in it for obvious reasons but they don't have to worry too much about broadcasting standards they, they're not trying to edit it down to 30 minutes so they don't have to be as snappy with what they're saying i think it is more just a sort of it's a bonus episode really it's one of those things that it was never intended for broadcast on television it probably never will be because there's not much appetite for video releases of panel shows these days particularly 25 year old episodes of a topical news quiz but yeah i think it's not the hardcore sort of too hot for tv that i think they quite marketed it as well, part of the problem with that is the two guests. You know, as likeable and as funny as they both are, 
Izzard were bad choices for this because on the one hand, Eddie Izzard had only just started doing television because for a couple of years he had the, I don't want to say gimmick because, you know, he actually meant it, but he refused to do television. It was quite a thing when he was on Comic Relief in 1993 and it was billed as his first television appearance. I remember being really excited and it didn't go very well because, you know, he'd already had the Live at the Ambassadors video by then, which was great, but he seemed really nervous in front of this studio audience because he probably wasn't used to doing it. It just didn't work. And he'd done a few bits of TV between that and this, but he still wasn't really comfortable. And he does have some great moments in this, including one which you're going to bring up in a minute. But it's the same here. It's almost like he isn't quite confident what he's doing. And Richard Wilson... At the height of his fame then, obviously brilliant to one foot in the grave, but he is not a showman by nature, by his own admission. He is not a funny... In fact, they actually say to him in the kind of preamble, which I included a bit of as the clip, when they're testing the mics, they say to him, tell us a joke. And he says, I don't know any. (laughs) Which is kind of the measure of the whole thing. He doesn't seem to quite understand what he's doing there. And that's consistent with when he was on Room 101 shortly afterwards. He didn't have much to say on that either. So I think neither of them really fitted the format that they were presumably trying to go for here. Yeah, I think Richard Wilson was more sort of like stunt casting because I think they wanted to get a big name to have on the video to try and get sales in. But then Having News For You has kind of always... Because people talk about how the problem with Mock the Week is that you have seven comedians all fighting for fighting for the best gag, fighting for the spotlight. The thing about Having News For You is they have non-comedians on. They'll have politicians, they'll have journalists... And so they always have someone who's not there to try and get the gag, someone to be the foil or the straight man or, you know, the target of the satire. And I think Richard kind of fits that bill for this because he's kind of the cantankerous old man of the episode. And I'm wondering if he if he did it because he was, you know, obviously he's friends with Angus Dayton because they were in One Foot in the Grave together. But I think Having News For You benefits from that where other comedy shows maybe don't. So while he's not very good at telling jokes himself, he does get a few laughs from sort of getting irritated at Eddie's antics and Paul's antics and things like that and sort of bantering with Ian and going aren't we supposed to be on the same team and things like that and so I think he doesn't get as many jokes of his own in but I think he does play a necessary role that I think something like Havoc News for You does need in order for the jokes to land instead of it just being as gladiatorial as something like Mock the Week might be Both of them I will say did have moments that I still remember how much I laughed at them at the time even now Richard Wilson it's there's a round about singing politicians where they play I mean, this could not be more than 1995 if you tried. Arnold Sane by Blur, which had... Are we allowed to mention him now? But Ken Livingston narrating it as a kind of man-telling story of bored commuter. It's just the way Richard Wilson, when asked who it is, disdainfully says, Oasis, in a really grumpy <laughs> way. And obviously it turns out to be Blur. But Eddie Izzard, there's an astonishing bit where the up one out round, one of them is Jermaine Greer, who, when they make a comment about her, suddenly it's her on the video feed. And she yes. And back to them. And then Eddie Izzard says, is this going to happen with all the pictures? Is the Albert Hall going to come on and say, I'm building? That's a fantastic bit. Yeah, because just before that, they have a what happens next round where there's a weather presenter and a streaker comes on and they say, what was the streaker doing? What were they doing? And they said, well, if it was a real show, you'd have them as a surprise guest. And they go, well, it's here tonight. And then Angus goes, I'm sorry, we can't afford surprise guests on this show. And then boom, about five minutes later, Jermaine Greer pops up. And it's something that there's a couple of things that have happened 
happened on the TV show since that happened for the first time in this video release? Because this happened with Jermaine Greer, where she was on a live feed as part of one of the four of the Odd One Out round. And then just last year, they had Jackie Weaver doing exactly the same thing, where she was one of the Odd One Out rounds. And earlier in the video, in the episode, they do a spoof of Mastermind, where they do a Mastermind round on Ian and Paul. And then they brought that back a couple of years later from Magnus Magnuson when he was on the show. They have a bit of banter with Jermaine. And then the next Odd One Out question that they do, the very first picture is the Queen. And Paul Merton says, oh, careful what you say, she'll come round in a minute. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's basically an extended episode of the show. Like I say, like they have four Odd One Out round questions. They have a, quite a few VTs and missing words and things like that. And then they have the two bonus rounds, which are What Happened Next and Mastermind. And it does sort of just add a bit of dynamic to the show and it adds some extra stuff that you wouldn't get to see on the television. And yeah, I do love the fact that they had Jermaine Greer as a surprise guest. Because again, I mean, let's be honest, it was a very blokey show at that point. And, you know, they had a female guest on it eventually. But yeah, she I thought she was fantastic. Well, that's really the problem with it is the fact that it is, as far as I can tell, completely unedited. All the fluffs and retakes are left in and so on. And it doesn't really sustain that. It would be like if you went to see it live and somebody just stuck a camera there. I, I mean live in the sense that they did the tour of, you know, your regional art centre yeah. rather than you went to recording. It kind of feels like that. It reminds me of the, and even this was edited down, the Big Night Out on Tour video, which just kind of felt slightly too flabby for its own good. You know, it was good, but it was the pacing was wrong. And I get that same sense with this. Even though, you know, you've got, it isn't just the show it starts with a stage thing about the production of it which is yeah i love that, that brilliant bit where paul hasn't got the next page of the script it's supposed to be are we going to do this all day it just says are we going at the end there's a top of large video timing yeah that part i forgot about that completely until i watched it last night like there's a sort of mockumentary of the making of the show because i mean these panel shows are always accused of being scripted and all the off-the-cuff jokes and all the sort of jabs at politicians and things like that are actually prepared well in advance so they spoof that in this by having an actual scene of a table read with Ian, Paul and Angus where they're reading through that week's script of the show with an acting coach and getting suggestions of what tone to answer the questions in and things like that and at the end Ian Hislop storms out after having an argument with the director I love that I love that they actually sort of filmed stuff for that like it cuts to Ian Hislop in his dressing room and he's hitting a punching bag with Paul Merton's face on it and things like that I love that they played all that up rather than just having the episode oh yeah there was Richard Wilson getting a briefing from the producer on what words they can't say during the recording and then he asks what about the F word and they go oh yeah you can say the F word we've got to get the teenagers in because it's an extended episode maybe the editing isn't as tight as it would be on the 30 minute version it's a well produced video and I am kind of sad that it hasn't seen a re-release because I think it's got a lot of great jokes in it and I think it's a shame that it's been kind of lost to the archives of VHS well yeah that's really weird because it's not even on the very first compilation DVD has the other non-broadcast video from the 90s the pirate video which had Neil Morrissey and Martin Clunes as the guests who kind of get it a bit more because they do their own stupid antics running in parallel to the main game. They kind of understand why they're there. That's on there. This isn't which is really really weird. But Hat Trick did these sort of videos really really well because I remember around the same time there was the earlier Have I Got News For You compilation that I mentioned. There was a Whose Line Is It Anyway one which was really well done. There was a Clive Anderson Talks Back one. So a video compilation of 
highlights from a chat show, which is brilliant. <laughs> How did they do that? But this, I think, started, as you rightly say, a craze for... I don't think they really even produced all these other things, because, you know, like, never mind the Buzzcocks did one, Shooting Stars, they think it's all over. Everything did, but I don't think they were doing it because they wanted to do a show for VHS only. They were doing it to corner the Christmas market. And I yes. say that because this came out when I was a student... And, you know, you think about it. Your parents, whose kid is away at university, they come back for Christmas. What are you going to get them as a stocking filler? Oh, that programme they like, there's a video of it that it says won't be on the TV. Because I remember that January, everyone had got it. And toning this down for the family audience, there was a thing about sort of my friends at university where, now, this wasn't just a blokey thing. Women joined in with it as well. But if somebody had mysteriously been out all night after disappearing and then resurfaced, it was quite often asked, did they have, have I got all broadcastable news for you? Because you quite <laughs> often spotted it in people's rooms. There was that big crate. And before this, there had been video exclusive things that just didn't really do well. Not many of them, but things like the spitting image ones didn't really work and it's so weird that there was the football one from FA to Fair Play that somehow came up on DVD and for years that was all you could get of original spitting image <laughs> it was this not very good football theme one but there were a couple of other things that were sort of spun off from Saturday Live and Friday Night Live there were live videos people like Hale and Pace and Harry Enfield but filmed as if they were a TV special and nothing ever really worked I mean it's noticeable people like Fry and Laurie and Rick and Aid didn't really do anything like that but it was this that changed the game and yeah it's almost completely forgotten about it was and I think you've hit something there which is that this was before you know you could actually go back and watch old stuff so if a show went out and you didn't tape it you never got to see it again it was never repeated you know it was a topical comedy show there was no point in repeating it so Have I Got News For You was kind of the first I think it is considered to be the first TV panel show you know it's the one that started the craze it started this they, they realised that they had sort of this comedy gold mine, and that was when you started getting never mind the Buzzcocks and they think it's all over and I think they actually did crossovers with them at some point I think they did like comic relief crossovers with those and it was just a way of having episodes of these panel shows that you could watch again and again and again nowadays they don't do DVDs of these things because they're all available online for you to watch whatever you want but because this one is even though it's only rated 15 I guess it's still considered unrated and so they don't have it and it's a shame because all of these old panel shows like the Mark Lamar era of Nevermind the Buzzcocks like that was some of the funniest panel show I've ever seen and you can't really see it anywhere. I mean, some of the comedy in it is probably dated as hell by now, but it's a real shame that these brilliant eras of the beginnings of the panel show are kind of lost to time. And unless you find sort of grainy footage on YouTube, you're kind of stuck with it. OK, well, moving on to your next choice now, which is something that I wonder, I imagine you have probably listened to this again and again, but I'm wondering if many other people who bought it did.
Okay, that was Ballad of Youth by Richie Sambora. A name that you might be thinking, I know that name. Well, you do because he's normally the guitarist in Bon Jovi. But David, what was Stranger in This Town? Stranger in This Town is quite simply my favourite album of all time. And the title track is my favourite song of all time. I have been a massive Bon Jovi fan since the age of about 14, 15, like that. And when I got into the band, I got properly obsessed to the point where I bought every single album. I was scouring the internet back when illegal file sharing was in its heyday. I was trying to find every B-side, every demo, every bonus track that I could find. And once I'd exhausted the Bon Jovi catalogue, I started looking into the band's solo albums. And John Bon Jovi had done a couple. David Bryan, the keyboardist, had done an album of classical piano music, which I listened to, and that's actually amazing. And then I listened to Richie Sambora's solo albums. So this is his first solo album. It's from 1991, when at the end of the 80s, Bon Jovi took a few years off. They went on hiatus, and Richie Sambora decided he wanted to do an album. And it's an album of sort of blues rock. It's it's a lot more in the tune of sort of kind of Stevie Ray Vaughan, Eric Clapton, that kind of genre. It's a lot more than the hair metal of Bon Jovi. And he actually recruited Tico Torres, the Bon Jovi drummer, and David Bryan, the Bon Jovi keyboardist, to record it. This album, Stranger in This Town, Richie Sambora's first solo record, is basically what Bon Jovi would sound like if John Bon Jovi wasn't in the band. And I don't know what it says about me as a Bon Jovi fan that my favourite album of all time is the one that doesn't have John Bon Jovi on it. Ever since I listened to it, it's the album that I've listened to more than any other. It comes with a set of instructions which are turn down the lights, light a candle, welcome. And it is the it's the perfect record for listening to just sort of late at night just to chill out. Like I say, it's a really smooth sort of blues rock record with lots of great ballads on it. And I think it is utterly spellbinding. And it has been my favourite album since I was about 17. And yeah, I just think it is absolutely brilliant. And whenever I recommend it to people, I recommend it to people all the time, obviously, because it's my favourite record. And even people who aren't Bon Jovi fans come back to me and say, yeah, that album was brilliant. Thanks for giving that to me. Well, I was really, really surprised by it because I don't know that much about Bon Jovi beyond I had Slippery When Wet because everyone did, you know, at that point. And I know the hits and so on. And I had kind of gone into this expecting it to be because, you know, around the same time, John Bon Jovi does Blaze of Glory from Young Guns 2, the film song Blue Diamond Phillips as a rock, according to the original film poster for it. Blaze of Glory isn't that different to Bon Jovi. You know, it's without Richie Sambora's soloing, really. And I thought this would be the soloing without the songs, but it's completely not. He's gone off in a different direction. And I think the timing was perfect, because if you look at... I mean, Bon Jovi had taken, as you say, a couple of years off. And I can say, I appreciate, you know, the reception's probably changed since then. But I remember when I was at school, the people who really liked Bon Jovi didn't really like New Jersey, the album after Slippery When Wet, because it was kind of viewed as more of the same, really. They'd not moved on, but, yeah. you know, in those couple of years, you get all kinds of things happening, like, obviously, Nirvana is the big thing that changed what was going on, but you've also got Extreme kind of took the dexterity of metal and made it a bit funkier, brought, you know, folk and acoustic into it, and they didn't last very long, obviously, as a major proposition, but I think they changed the rules a bit. There were people like Dogston Moore, the Dan Reed Network, Guns N' Roses, you know, released two albums 
albums that sold I don't even want to estimate how much they sold so if he'd released something that was more like Bon Jovi I think he would have come very unstuck around them but this is completely different like you say it is really laid back it's really bluesy it's about dexterity but not in a show off way it's about how he can enhance the music with his playing it does unfortunately have Eric Clapton guesting on one track which is yeah. called Mr. Bluesman which you know is something you would make up as a joke about Eric Clapton guesting <laughs> on something but it's so much better than I had anticipated when I say better I mean in terms of it is much more interesting and I wonder yeah. if it kind of helped shape because another thing I know about Bon Jovi is when they came back with Keep the Faith now that's very different to what they'd done before they had clearly been listening to what was going on and they were taking themselves and the music a bit more seriously maybe and I wonder if because I assume this was a big critical success if that had any bearing on that yeah it's interesting because they did evolve sort of when the 90s happened I think they realised they saw because yeah there are four years between New Jersey and Keep the Faith and New Jersey like you say it's kind of just Slippery When Wet but again and you know that's not a bad thing because you know I loved Slippery When Wet but they saw what Nirvana and Soundgarden and people like that were doing and they realised that the scene was changing they decided to go down the sort of harder rock they cut their hair they got rid of the synthesizers and decided to go with sort of piano based stuff because that album's got Bed of Roses on it it's got Sleep When I'm Dead which is just sort of straight up hard rock and yeah between that and particularly the album afterwards these days which is properly sort of heavy grungy if you listen to any of the songs on that like Hey God they're properly heavy and they sound like they could have been on a Nirvana record but it's interesting talking about Stranger in This Town and how it's different from New Jersey because there is one track on there which is a Bon Jovi holdover which is Rosie and in my opinion it's one of the weaker tracks on the album and I think it is because it's nothing like any of the others because it is just a straight up sort of Bon Jovi song whereas the others have that kind of smooth sort of bluesy sound to them I remember when I was talking to a friend of mine I told him how much I loved this record he actually found the LP in a shop in Glasgow I'd like obviously he knew it was my favourite album he said to me he found this shop in Glasgow just off Queen Street Station he found the LP and he thought if I'd remembered at the time I would have bought it for you I went back to that shop next time I was in Glasgow I went back a few months later (laughs) the one day that I decided to go and look for this record record happened to be record store day so the queue to get into the record shop was an hour and a half long i had to wait an hour and a half to get into this record shop and completely ignore all the exclusive record store day stuff that everyone else was there for i just went in and went yes i'd like this one old obscure record please it was my first ever lp that i bought and i got this this was the summer of 2014 i got this record and of course in the six months since my friend had spotted it it hadn't been sold nobody knew what it was and i didn't get a record player for another six years so I just framed this record put it on my wall and I'd take it down and take it round to my friend's house to listen to just to check it was all right but (laughs) I bought a vinyl record and then didn't have anything to play it on for six years. Yeah, and apparently if I was looking on eBay yesterday and it goes for like a hundred quid this record now, it's that rare. But I can't see anything ever topping it because I just think it is phenomenal. Well, one really interesting thing is it seems to have done much better over here than it did in America, which probably kind of explains its scarcity now, was, you know, there aren't sort of millions of copies of America lying around, but it had a modicum of success over here, although one of my two criticisms of it, and I'll come back 
back to the one in a minute, is that I think Ballad of Youth was a baffling idea for a single. There are much oh, yeah. more obvious things on here, but even Ballad of Youth did reasonably well in the UK. That is quite interesting that in some ways people weren't interested maybe in what the individual members did in America, but there's always that tendency over here to follow people a bit more from bands. Yeah, definitely. That was a thing, particularly in the 90s, the UK was sort of Bon Jovi fandom central. Like, there were singles that were released over here that were never released anywhere else, and I think particularly in the 90s especially, Keep the Faith in These Days had something like six or seven top ten hits between them. Like, if I ever got to go on Pointless and the question was top 40 Bon Jovi singles, I could <laughs> rattle off a whole bunch. It's, it's really annoyed me as a Bon Jovi fan, because there are se- several bands that I know that are guilty of this, but Bon Jovi are one of the worst. They are the worst single choosers I've ever seen like there are so many brilliant songs on their albums that are deeper cuts and they always decide to go with sort of the blandest power ballad or the most repetitive monotonous sounds like everything they've done before kind of song instead of the much more interesting stuff that's later on down the album and they do this every single album cycle and it always annoys me and yeah I think Ballad of Youth if you wanted to get a snapshot of what Stranger in This Town sounds like you go with the title track you go with Mr blues man you go with one light burning or even even father time which i think is just a brilliant extended power ballad it does annoy me that that was the one thing but then again i don't know how much of that was richie sambora's choice whether that was the record company thinking they knew what the people wanted you know there's all the always these questions about it speaking of the title track i mean like i say that is my favorite song of all time mainly because when i first got into stranger in this town i just moved away from home i moved from scotland down to kent so i was 400 miles away from home and you know stranger in this town I'm walking around the streets of Canterbury with that in my head and that sort of stayed with me, you know. And I thought it was a song that I would never, ever hear live. Whenever Sam Bora, like Sam Bora only ever toured with Bon Jovi because, you know, that's where the audience was. And occasionally on the shows in the 90s, he would get a chance to do one of his solo songs. He would either sing I'll Be There For You from the New Jersey album or he'd get to sing one of his solo songs and he would always do Stranger In This Town because that's the title track. But then he stopped doing that in about the 2000s when I started getting into them. And then out of the blue in 2012, he decided to do a little tour of the UK, just the UK. And I don't know if that's because, again, of the fact that Bon Jovi fandom seemed to be at its peak in this country. But yeah, he did a little show at Shepherd's Bush Empire, and I took along a friend of mine who was a Bon Jovi fan who didn't know any of his solo stuff. And he did a whole bunch of interesting stuff. Like, obviously, he did Bon Jovi songs, but he did like Don't Look Back in Anger and just a bunch of covers. And then about three or four songs into the set he did Stranger in This Town and I'm not ashamed to say that I wept because this was a song that I thought I'd never get to hear and it's my favourite song of all time and yeah he left Bon Jovi in 2013 apparently because he couldn't handle the touring he didn't want to be away from his family anymore he felt like he was missing his daughter growing up and things like that so he left Bon Jovi mid-tour with no warning and it's kind of a shame that that partnership has kind of been broken because I remember reading somewhere like the Bon Jovi Sambora songwriting partnership and performing partnership I remember seeing someone compare it to David Bowie and Mick Ronson the kind of chemistry that they had and the things they were able to do together however it has meant that he has done a couple of solo tours since then and I've got to see him a couple more times so you know it's kind of column A column B the dissolution of my favourite band or the chance to hear my favourite songs you know you've got to take the good with the bad I guess well mentioning his choice of covers 
brings me round to the one thing I do not like about this album at all. You may be ahead of me here. First of mm-hmm. all, I'll just get out of the way and say I was very pleased to see in the credits somebody playing the Chapman stick, which is that weird modified bass guitar that caused Grace Dent such amusement on Looks Unfamiliar. <laughs> but some additions to this album have a cover of The Wind Cries Mary by Jimi Hendrix, which yep. is one of my favourite songs of all time. I even like Jamie Cullum's version of it. This, about 15 seconds in, I was just thinking stop no because <laughs> my problem is kind of you know Hendrix's original was written as an apology to Kathy Etchingham and he performs it like an apology it's got that real kind of edge of regret to it mm-hmm. and it's quiet and muted almost like a whisper and this just seems like Richie Sambora's bought a new guitar and wants to show off with it <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it I'm prepared that you might feel very differently to me on that score I mean I don't think it's terrible I think it's all right I it is a bonus track you know i don't think it deserves to be in amongst the rest of the album but i do because i love like when christ mary is my favorite hendrix song it always has been and i think he is kind of going for a different tone with it he's kind of i think it's his tribute to Jimi hendrix himself because like right at the end he ends by going and the wind cries and then you can hear jimmy sort of during the fade out so i think he's going for a completely different tone but i think anyone trying to cover hendrix is never going to be as good as the original and you know even as i say that he's you know he's my one of my favorite artists i think it's anyone trying to like because i have the feeling same feeling about like stevie ray vaughan doing little wing and things like that they always add their own flair to it and it's never quite as good as the original and yeah i don't think it's a bad cover i don't have quite the same sort of visual reaction to it that you did (laughs) but i think that's a fair point when you consider the context of the original yeah well i've only just realized this now but the total length of stranger in this town with the wing christ mare intact is twice the length of your next choice I can't even finish this link. Let's just have a clip. Hi. Hi. Do you like my tight jeans? Yeah. Yeah, I got thrush. Thank you. Anyone's got some natural yoghurt, meet me out front. All right, love. Have you tried that, though? They do say that, don't they? If you've got thrush, put natural yoghurt there. I did try this, and I got cottage cheese. It's not right. But, but why do we do that? We do that, don't we, girls? It's like we've always got to suffer when we're trying to look good. It's the only reason I can think of why girls wear high heel shoes. Those, I'm sure the guys laugh at us when they see us coming out of those clubs at four o'clock in the morning, because it must be like watching Walking with Dinosaurs. <laughs> no, that walk is that walk is it with a little clutch bag. <laughs> and here we have the silly Kawasaurus. <laughs> Listen to the sound of her mating call. Okay, that's Jocelyn G. Essian doing a bit of stand-up comedy on 28 acts in 28 minutes. David, I remember this really, really fondly, and it sounds like you do too. Yeah, so this was during the end of my school years and the beginning of my university years. The summer of 2006 was when this particularly came out, but this was around the time I was properly getting into a lot of Radio 4 comedy. I'm thinking back, I remember Genius, Another Case of Milton Jones, Mark Watson Makes the World Substantially Better. This was around the same time I was getting into Eddie Izzard's stand-up because I was spending sort of late nights on Friday nights listening to what was then BBC Radio 7, listening to Eddie's stand-up shows and 
doing my best not to I was laughing so hard and I didn't want to wake my family up but this was my favorite of the lot this was a show that amazingly it started off as a TV show in 2005 on BBC 3 and then moved to Radio 4 which I think I can't think of any other BBC shows that have gone in that direction so this is basically it does exactly what it says on the tin as Tom Price mentions in one of his minutes but you've got 28 different acts most of them comedians although you do get occasional other people as well performing one minute of stand-up or one minute of performance each over the course of 28 minutes and it's non-stop it's so funny because all the comedians are obviously trying to leave their mark yeah I just remember it being utterly superb and it, it just amazes me especially now as I've got older and I've learned more about the comedy industry and the television and radio industries and things like that because the logistics of putting it together must have been an absolute nightmare you know you've got 28 people because they all recorded it at once you know there were 28 different acts all in the green room and in some cases they would do two recordings back to back so you've got to imagine 56 comedians or comedy acts all backstage waiting for their one minute and it just must have been an absolute nightmare to organize but yeah i just remember so many comedians that i discovered because of this show in particular i mean you've got the established acts at that time like nicholas parsons closes the first one you've got barry crier you've got people like punt and dennis and richard herring and stuart lee but there are so many comedians that the first time i ever heard them was on this show and quite a lot of them that were relatively unknown at the time but would go on to become household names a few years down the road i mean you've got like jason manford sarah millican john bishop john finnamore josie long Alex Horn, Greg Davis, Tom Allen. There's just so many names that at the time you think, oh, they're quite funny, yeah. And then a few years later you go, hang on, I know you from 20 acts in 28 minutes. I absolutely loved it. And obviously they didn't record that many of them because they would run out of comedians very quickly. But it was probably the best Radio 4 show I can remember from that time. Well, I remember it working a lot better on the radio than on the TV because the thing with the TV one was it was kind of a wider spectrum. It was a bit like mentioning them again, Saturday Live or Friday Night Live sort of condensed down into half an hour with these really short sets because you did get weirder esoteric acts and you know some quite visual ones as well like Men in Coats does anyone remember them who did weird things with sort of anoraks and so on sort of weird visual gags which you know obviously wouldn't work on the radio but the problem was getting everyone on and off stage physically kind of made it feel a bit too rushed a bit too panicked whereas I assume on the radio there were three or four of them lined up ready to just step in front of the microphone and so it felt like the pace was much better and like you say there were all these people like Sarah Millican like I remember hearing John Bishop and thinking that's him that's that bloke that used to the open mic nights in Liverpool <laughs> unfortunately Andrew Lawrence was on quite a bit but we won't talk about him but there was that balance as you say between I mean Neil Innes was on it once yeah yeah and the weird thing was it was never quite, it may be broadcasting blocks of series, but it never felt like that to me. It felt like they put it on every so often. Yeah, so it had, I believe, because there weren't that many at all. I think the original run on Radio 4 was three episodes, and then they did one special at the Edinburgh Festival in 2006. And then I think they did another two the following year, and then maybe one more Edinburgh special, and then that was it. So there's only something like seven or eight episodes total, which I can kind of understand, because again, it must have been a logistical nightmare to organise. I don't know how many comedians would want to do it more than once. I mean, there are a few repeats between the episodes and between the series, but I don't think there would be that many that would want to do it again and again. And also, I don't know how much it would have cost to make, because one of the performers, Dan Antopolsky, mentions that each of the comedy acts was paid 250 quid for their one-minute performance. And he worked out that if you were paid that for a full-time job, you'd earn £15,000 an hour and £24 million a year. (laughs) 
and so I think it was just it was a wonderful sort of flash in the pan. It's a brilliant little snapshot of what comedy was like in the mid 2000s. Actually, I've seen a few people talking about it recently. I've not seen anyone mention it at all in like the past 15 years. But in the past week or two, I've seen people talk about it a bit because after Barry Cryer died, I saw a couple of stories going around about how when he was on 28 Acts and 28 Minutes, they were doing two recordings back to back. They were all hanging around backstage and he watched every single performer and then he went up to the producer Ed Morish afterwards and asked for the performers phone numbers so that he could individually ring them up and tell them how brilliant they were which I think is just a mark of what a brilliant guy Barry was. I actually remember having a Twitter chat with the producers a few years ago because I remember saying does anyone else remember this and I remember talking to Ed Morish and he looked at the lineup and the one comment that he had about the time which I think is something that they would have corrected by now is that he said it was a very white male lineup which I think is it's a fair comment it was the mid 2000s they hadn't really started making any moves to correct that yet other than that that's the only thing that i can remember there being any criticism over i remember everyone else talking about it very very fondly i do have a few sort of i don't know do you have any sort of favorite moments from it that you can remember i can't really but i think that's because it did move so fast which was to its absolute credit because it makes me think of how familiar are you with the grumbleweeds not at all a very strange thing they started in the 60s as like a serious psychedelic rock band who made jokes between their songs and found that people liked the jokes a lot more. They were kind of a bit countercultural at first. They wound up on Radio 2 with their own show, which was a really big sketch show for years and years. And, you know, they settled into it eventually. It became a bit more predictable. But and then they transferred to television and the producer kind of looked at their act and did the run through with them and said, what we want to do is keep everything as short as possible because if somebody doesn't like something, they haven't got time to say, I'm sick of the grumble weeds before the next joke's on. <laughs> and it works. They were on Saturday evenings on ITV for years. Obviously, the TV show wasn't as good as they were on the radio, but I've always thought that was a great approach, just keeping it that short. And that's why I think I remember names from 28 Acts and 28 Minutes rather than any of the jokes they told, because they stood out, not through a joke, but by being good for a minute. And yeah. then someone else came on. It's interesting as well, because the narrator that sort of links the, them together on the radio is John Humphreys, which is a really weird choice. Like, even when it first went out, and I remember seeing sort of like, I don't know what sort of paper or magazine it was in they were saying why is it narrated by John Humphreys why is he the one introducing each of the comedians just everyone knew it was an odd pick do you think because John Sargent obviously used to be a comedian in the 60s you think they wanted him and got the wrong John by accident <laughs> possibly there's throwaway comments honestly he's kind of the worst bit of it because he just goes well I have no idea what that was about on to the next one they do actually play people off so if any of the comedians run over they have this kind of sort of drum beat that they play which is only about five or ten seconds long and it's basically the transition music but if anyone overruns their minute they are just sort of played off and they don't get to finish whatever routine they were doing at the time and there are a couple that do get just cut off and you don't get to hear the end of it i still have the recordings because this was back in the very very early days of the bbc iplayer when they hadn't quite figured out downloads and they obviously didn't have their own app or anything like that yet the internet of the 2000s wasn't as well held together as it is now shall we say and so <laughs> i was able to go into the source code of the website and i did this as well <laughs> yeah you could, you could download the audio file which was just like an mp3 
And so I still have these, which it is technically piracy, but then they don't replay any of these shows. So I've still got them downloaded on my iPod. I can listen to it for years and years afterwards, which is why I can actually remember some of my favorites because I listen to it all the time. My top three in ascending order, Ed Byrne trying to cram his Back to the Future routine into less than a minute. So trying to speak about five times faster than he usually does. That alone is just amazing to see. It's just like, okay, Marty McFly, he goes back in time. And when he goes back in time, he causes them, he's caused the parents not to meet each other. And that threatens his existence. And he just talks like that for the entire minute and manages to get all the jokes in. And it's fantastic. My second favorite is Martin White plays Song 2 by Blur at double speed oh, on yes. an accordion. Just going, and that's brilliant as well. But my absolute favorite moment from the entire thing is from a comedian called Seymour Mace, who is still around. He tells the ultimate man walks into a bar joke of all time. And I used to go back and listen to this regularly. And I actually went online. I went to I went online to see if he's told us anywhere else to see if there's any video footage or anything. And I cannot find a single thing. It seems like, as far as I know, this is the only place he's ever told it. And thankfully, someone went online and I found a blog post from 2006 where someone had transcribed the joke. I'll try and do it justice now. I can't obviously can't do it as well as he does, but someone has written it down, and I just I have to share this with the world. This, this is enti- this is Seymour Mace doing the ultimate man walks into a bar joke. Okay, here we go. A ghost, a white horse, a bloke with a giraffe, a polar bear, another horse, a penguin, another bloke, a piece of string, a duck, another bloke with another penguin and an elephant all walk into a bar. They all ask for a pint except the single penguin who asked the barman if he's seen his brother and the bloke with a giraffe asks for a pint for the giraffe too. The barman says, we don't serve spirits, we've got a whiskey named after you, there you go, 185, why the long face, what does he look like, I hope you're not a piece of string, 220, told you to take that penguin to the zoo, 563, we don't get many elephants in here. Meanwhile, some peanuts say looking good and the cigarette machine says you're a ponce. The white horse says, what, Dave, the bloke with the giraffe says, one for me, one for the giraffe. The polar bear says, okay. The piece of string says, I'm afraid not. The other bloke says, what's going on here? The duck says, you can put it on my bill. The bloke with the penguin says, I took him to the zoo. Now I'm going to take him to the pictures. The elephant says, if 563 are pint, I'm not surprised. The barman says, there you go. Why the big paws? The peanuts are complimentary and the fag machine's out of order. The bloke with the giraffe gets out to leave and the giraffe collapses on the way out. The polar bear says, to hack through the ice in the Arctic. The barman says, you can't leave that lion there. And the bloke says, it's not a lion, it's a giraffe. <laughs> And it's just, it's the greatest joke I've ever heard. And he finishes bang on his time and then just walks off. It just sums up 28 acts and 28 minutes absolutely perfectly. He gets in, bang, does something brilliant and leaves. And yeah, that's Seymour Mace. Absolutely. Go and check out his stuff. He's incredible. I love this radio show. I wish they repeated it more often because it's, yeah, it's utterly incredible. Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, which I can't think of any way of introducing this other than that somebody who could probably do his own 28 acts in 20 28 minutes and do five entire series of them in one go without pausing for breath. Right, you'll never guess what this is. Now, I suppose everybody in the world has been in a second-hand car lot, but in Queensland, you get second-hand house lots. You see this? You see these? This, this is a house here. This is, this is underneath the floor. And these sort of pallet things, like things off the back of a truck that it's standing on, they're just temporary things. Now, this is a typical Queenslander. Wooden slats, the lattice on the big wide veranda, and the house over here, and the corrugated metal roof. Now this is what they do, they put them on stumps where these these things are. Wooden sort of tree trunk things, delivered, it usually says delivered and stumped for a certain price. They don't dig uh, foundations like a normal house, there are no foundations. They just flatten the land, put the stumps in. So you, you drive along here, this is a freeway here, you can probably hear it. You drive along, you see the second-hand house lot, 
you drive in and say, I'll have the yellow one, I'll have the beige or the white one, the nice thing. Choose this one. They say, right, yeah. Where's your address, your bit of land, bing bong. And they deliver it. Okay, that was a little bit, obviously, of Billy Connolly talking about removable homes. Why was he doing that, David? So this was one of Billy Connolly's TV shows in the 90s. He did a series of TV series that were the World Tour series. He started off with the World Tour of Scotland. Then he did the World Tour of Australia. Then it was the World Tour of England, Wales and Ireland. And then the final one was the World Tour of New Zealand. And in each of these shows, a documentary crew would follow Billy Connolly as he did a tour of that particular country. And so it would be parts of his stand up interspersed with him just exploring the country that he's in going and visiting his favorite places going and doing whatever sort of things the locals were doing and things like that the reason that i bring this up is that this was one of my first experiences of billy Connolly. billy Connolly is my hero he is my favorite comedian of all time and i utterly adore him but this is one of the few times where his stand-up takes second stage to the actual documentary bit and the reason why i bring it to this show is i have a bit of an appeal to your listeners one of the things can I ask, since um, you obviously do a superhero podcast, if you could have any superpower, what would your superpower be? Well, as I've said before, it would be to have Star-Lord's flying boots so I could steal the master tape of Carnival of Light by the Beatles and Happy Bell. <laughs> and as I said, I go on the day when Paul McCartney was recording there to go, hey oh, look, it's a flying fella into the bargain. <laughs> yes, that would be mine. Oh, that's that's so much better than mine. So obviously, like, was, like I said, I'm, I'm a big music fan. My ideal superpower would be the ability to pick the perfect background music for any situation in my life. I've got dozens and dozens of playlists on my computer for like, I have to have like playlists for driving at night, driving during the day, driving in the sunshine, going for a run in the sunshine, when it's snowing, when it's raining, when it's sunny, like every particular situation of my life, I have to try and find the perfect music for. And in Billy Connolly's World Tour of Australia, the theme song for the show is called In the Dreamtime. And it's a song written by Ralph McTell and it's performed by Billy Connolly. And the incidental music is sort of motifs and light motifs based on this song and it uses kind of shimmering synthesizers and flutes and sort of native Australian Aboriginal instruments things like that and ever since I saw it back in the early 2000s the music for this has been to me the perfect like summer music like in terms of sort of driving in the sunshine lying on a beach just listening on holiday I have been chasing this music for the past 20 years and the reason that was the CD accompaniment to this because it was a TV show and then they released an accompanying CD and they did this for Billy Connolly's World Tour of Scotland which was the first one and the CD that accompanied it was the music from the show it was called the Musical Tour of Scotland and it was all the incidental background music songs that were used during it and so I thought they'd do the same thing with World Tour of Australia and so I tracked down a copy of the CD on eBay in about 2007 and it's just an audio version of the show it's just Billy Connolly going about his business going on trips and going off visiting places and doing his stand-up and things like that and it's great, but it's not what I wanted. I wanted the music, you know. I wanted to put it down and put it on my playlist and listen to it every single time I was lying on a beach. And I was so desperate to try and get this music because this music, I love this music so much. Like, I just, I think it is perfect, perfect summer music. I even took the DVDs, ripped them onto my computer, took the audio files and put them in Audacity and tried to remove the talking over it to try and take the music from it. And I'm not a good audio engineer. And they've never released it since, obviously, 
I'm guessing that Ralph McTell has all the music somewhere. And so I was wondering if any of your listeners sort of either knew Ralph McTell and could get him to release the music or had any, <laughs> I was able to sort of edit out the dialogue and just have the music in the background because I have been chasing this music for the past 20 years. It's a brilliant, brilliant show. Australia has been the number one place that I have wanted to go ever since I saw this. And I am such a fan of Billy Connolly. Basically, Billy Connolly has been an influence on my life since I was a teenager. He did a documentary where he drove Route 66. And my dad and I drove Route 66 a couple of years later. And it was just the best. Yeah, he's been an influence on my life for the longest time. And not just in terms of his comedy, in terms of his documentaries and the music that was accompanied by them. Yeah. Well, the music angle is really interesting. Because one thing we should say is that the actual World Tours shows were absolutely fantastic. Because the bit that's always stayed with me is in the Scotland one where he visits somewhere where apologies you're probably going to know where this is and I don't but there's somewhere where there's a huge set of natural steps in a hillside and he's kind of he's overcome with you know the default beauty of it the fact that this has happened by itself he does this amazing bit to camera about how there's always something new in the world to see then it cuts to him doing a show in that town at night and he basically says I won't do the voice but he says I've been looking around your town there's these bloody big steps and the audience into like almost all on the floor screaming laughing and he says you can go up them and then then you can go back down again <laughs> and it's, it's so much of a release valve for them clearly you know that it's something that's been permanent in their lives that they'd never thought about yeah as anything other than something that's just there and he's highlighted it. it reminds me richard herring always tells a story about he was once in the lift with billy Connolly, who just effortlessly started riffing on the instructions in the lift and how absurd they were and he said it was the duration of a lift ride and it's the funniest thing he'd ever heard and billy Connolly just came <laughs> out with it based on what was to hand and those shows are amazing for that but the thing about soundtrack music that you can't get hold of that yes. is something that i'm sure you will know anyone who's followed what i've done for a long time will be only too aware of me trying to track down things like the princess song from bagpuss and you know stuff that wasn't released there's the album with the original casino royale does not have the vocal version of the theme song from it so only years later I found out that was issued as a single all kinds of other things like are you aware of the horror film dr terror house of horrors from the early 60s i've heard the name but i know no more than that it's like a portmanteau thing one of the stories in it has roy castle as a jazz musician who learns forbidden music from it doesn't play well now but from an african tribe basically and then he mysteriously dies from voodoo on stage because he's betrayed their secrets but this absolutely scorching hot set of songs that he plays with tubby hayes who's a legendary british jazz figure for years and years i mean it's been released now the whole thing by trunk records and really anyone listening go and get that it's an absolutely brilliant little ep there was a single at the time credited to roy castle voodoo girl slash dr terrace house of horrors and people had assumed that was the jazz bit somebody bought it at an auction because it was almost impossible to get hold of it's an unrelated song and him singing with kind of a lounge band doing a vocal version <laughs> of one of the jazz tracks and people's disappointment when that was shared online i know was yeah was palpable but it's so hard i mean for years and years it was really difficult to get hold of the one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve song from sesame street just because it was never released at the time and the thing is when that window of opportunity has passed when's it going to come up again that's exactly it i mean it's like 
we talked about it with the on broadcast we'll have I can use for you. There's no financial reason for them to ever release it again because it's part of that era. And I think it's the same with this thing about music that is unavailable. I mean, there's a whole scandal going on in the video games world at the moment because a lot of Nintendo's music is unavailable anywhere and people have been putting it up online. There are certain YouTube channels that have archived it all for people to listen to and Nintendo have been taking down literally thousands of videos over the past couple of days claiming copyright on them and then just not releasing the songs anywhere else. And they're basically saying if you want to listen to the songs, buy the games. And it's just, it's a real problem with sort of pressure preservation of these pieces of people's youth basically people's cultures and yeah i do worry like billy Connolly's world tour they got released on dvd in the early 2000s and they've not been released since they're not available on any streaming platforms or anything like that and i mean we've talked about it the last time just sort of things just getting lost to history and it's it's just such a real shame and thankfully billy Connolly has an official youtube channel now and his stuff is going to be getting uploaded on that but it's little sort of three or four minute chunks like a lot of youtube is and the entire episodes they're just they're stuck on these stuck on dvds stuck on edited episodes like the theme song like in the Dreamtime, the theme song of world tour of australia is not available anywhere in its entirety they use one verse of the song the song has something like four or five verses in it and they use one verse to end each episode and the last episode has i think three or four of the verses together but it's still not the entire song like one of the verses is stuck on other episodes so even within the show itself the theme song is not available in its entirety and it's not available anywhere else and I just it's yeah it, it's been so frustrating to me as someone who I've just been recording parts of the DVD onto my iPod or onto like an audio software or something because it's the only way I can get it and then having to do something that I never thought I would ever do which is edit out Billy Connolly's stand-up <laughs> And there's a, particularly on the CD, there's one of the best pieces of music is when he goes fishing on the beach in Newcastle, I think it is. It's this brilliant piece. It's full of like, it's it's the perfect sort of summer beach kind of music. And halfway through, it abruptly ends and goes to a bit about Billy Connolly talking about the difference between men's and women's orgasms. And I'm like, I don't want to listen to that while I'm on the beach, <laughs> while I'm enjoying myself in the sunshine. So I had to go in and chop it out. And I didn't want to do it because it's Billy Connolly's stand-up. You don't want to be doing that. But it's the only way to get the music in a form that you can enjoy. Talking about Billy Connolly in general, I remember the first time I showed it to a friend of mine, my best friend Stuart, when I was about 14. We had his greatest hits VHS and I put it on for him and we had to pause the video several times because my friend was literally lying on the floor hyperventilating. He was laughing so hard. I do think, like that story with Richard Herring, I think he is the funniest person. I think he's the funniest person that's ever lived. I think I'd be, I'm pretty sure of that. I've been lucky enough, I was lucky enough to see him live three times whenever he came back to Glasgow, which was always a big event. The very first time I saw him, actually, it was a charity show. And actually, Ralph McTell came out and played a few songs, including In the Dreamtime. So for me, that was a wonderful little crossover of kind of the music of World Tour of Australia, as well as Billy's stand-up. And yeah, it was wonderful. And we have to sort of appreciate and where we still can. Okay, well, just going back a bit to what you said about Nintendo taking down videos from YouTube, I'm going to be really annoyed if I go and look now and the music from Ice Ice Outpost on Mario Kart 8 isn't on there anymore and I have to actually play the game with sounds over it to listen to it. <laughs> but I think if anyone ripped any of the music from your next choice, they might get away with it. <laughs> Hey man, get portable. Get a Game Gear Supersonic Sports Pack. A color portable Game Gear, carrying case, and two hit games. Sonic 2 and the Majors Pro Baseball. 
Whoa, even save 50 bucks. The Game Gear Supersonic Sports Pack. You know who makes it. Coffee? Tea? Okay, that was an advert for the Sega Game Gear. This is something I remember I didn't own, but I remember playing on. David, did you have one? I do have one. I still have one. This was something that I got in the early 90s. As was mentioned the last time I was on, I'm a huge Sonic the Hedgehog fan. I was obsessed with him in the early 90s. And so my parents decided to get me a Sega Game Gear for car journeys and things like that. This console was Sega's attempt to compete with Nintendo's Game Boy. The way they did that was by being as ambitious as possible at the sacrifice of basically any sort of extended playtime or costs to parents or anything like that. It was a handheld device with a very small square screen in the middle, but it was very chunky. It was sort of held in the way that it sort of it was horizontal, like a Nintendo Switch is, as opposed to the vertical Game Boy. And it had a color screen. It had a backlit screen, so you could play it in the dark. Unfortunately, both of these things mean... Can you remember how many batteries it took? I believe it was six, wasn't it? It was. It was six AA batteries for a battery life of three hours. Now that's the advertised battery life. I distinctly remember my Game Gear dying after about 90 minutes and going back to my parents and going, I need another six AA batteries, please. (laughs) I mean, honestly, I think, you know, the the energy crisis of the early 1990s wasn't caused by the Gulf War. It was caused by the Game Gear. That must have been an absolute fortune for parents who bought this thing. It was more expensive than the Game Boy. It was more expensive to run than the Game Boy, and it didn't sell as well as the Game Boy as a result. It's something that Nintendo has done rather well, because they did this when the PlayStation Portable came out in the 2000s as well, is that they always sell a lot more consoles than the more powerful competitors when it comes to the handheld games like the playstation portable didn't sell as many as the nintendo ds and the game gear didn't sell as many as the game boy despite the fact that it had a color screen and it had a backlight and these were really ambitious for the time this thing came out in about 1990 1991 and the game boy wouldn't get a color screen for another seven years and it wouldn't get a light up screen for another 11 or 12 So I admire Sega's ambition, but I don't think my parents' bank balance appreciated it as much as I did. Well, my main memory of it is that the rivalry it had with the Game Boy was a bit like the rivalry between Betamax and VHS in that the inferior format, you know, that was more flashy, likeable, portable, was what caught on. And I remember, actually, the games I played on the Game Gear were things like, I remember Lemmings looking really underwhelming on it. Like it yeah. just seemed like almost like lines moving about. There was a terrible, terrible cut down of Mickey Mouse in Castle of Illusion called London yes. Illusion starring Mickey Mouse, which was really annoyingly clunky and... Obviously, it was one-dimensional, the graphics were one-dimensional, but it felt just very kind of solve a simple problem, move on. It was like a bad Spectrum game with better graphics. And I just think they thought too much about the presentation, about, well, not even really about the design, because like you say, it was quite big. It was a landscape thing. And they'd not given them a thought to the content. I mean, I believe the built-in game was Columns, which is just Tetris, very, very slightly amended so they didn't get sued, although they did later get sued. You know about the story about the advertising no i don't was they promoted it with a series of adverts basically insulting the intelligence of anyone who got a game boy in quite an unacceptable way which moved nintendo to initiate legal action basically saying we're not doing this because we think we'll lose sales to you we're doing it on behalf of mentally disabled people (laughs) you know this isn't fair so this is our cease and desist do a proper advert yeah i think that kind of sums up the whole exercise it was about showing off 
off in public and they didn't put any thought into the consumer experience. Yeah, Sega did a lot of this at the time. I mean, their most famous advertising slogan, which was for the Mega Drive, was Sega does what Nintendo don't. And I, I, if you can imagine, can you imagine any advertising campaign today just taking a direct slap at their competitor, particularly a competitor that is selling better than them? I mean, we have to remember that the Game Gear sold, it didn't do too badly. I mean, it sold about 9, 10 million units, but the Game Boy sold about 115. So it was outselling the Game Gear 10 to 1. And Sega had this thing about they were trying to appeal to the cool kids. You know, Nintendo had Mario. It had the sort of children's market. You know, Nintendo was basically the Disney of the video game world. It always has been. That's why they created Sonic the Hedgehog and called him the Hedgehog with Attitude and things like that. They were properly in on all of those radical 90s terms that everyone was using. And so, yeah, I remember some of the commercials talking about this is a Nintendo, this is a Sega, you know, this one's lame and this one's cool. And they did that a lot, yeah. I don't know really if it actually worked for them or whether they thought, well, we're, this is our Hail Mary because we're already not selling as well as them. Because the Mega Drive is really the only successful console that Sega had. Like, if you th- if you ask the average person in the street, complete the phrase Sega, they'll say Mega Drive. Like, that, most people associate Sega with the Mega Drive or just call it the Sega. Because every other console that they had, the Saturn, the Dreamcast, the Game Gear, and the Master System, they all fa- they didn't fail but they undersold compared to their competitors to the point where in 2001, Sega pulled the plug and started just making their games for everyone else's consoles. And so the Game Gear kind of, they overshot. And as a result, the battery life and the price point, they were too ambitious for their own good, sadly. I mean, admittedly, my parents did buy me a rechargeable battery pack, which is good because most games had no save function and some of the games took about seven or eight hours to complete. And if your battery dies after two hours and you can't save your game, you're going to have to start all over again. So yeah, yeah, I, I, admittedly, I, I still have it. I think it still works. But like you say, like you mentioned with Mickey Mouse, a lot of the games are kind of watered down versions of what came out on the Mega Drive. Castle of Illusion was on the Mega Drive. Obviously, Sonic was. There was a Donald Duck game as well. I think it was called the Lucky Dime Caper. And that was basically a little brother version of the Donald Duck game for the Mega Drive, Quackshot, which was amazing. And it did seem like it was kind of the sort of the little brother of the Mega Drive. And all the games were not quite as good versions of the ones that you could get on your television. Well, I'm just going to come out and say this. I think one of the reasons that their consoles didn't do as well was they were always terrible at advertising. And I have wanted to bring this up in Looks Unfamiliar for a while. They had the original Mega Drive campaign in the early 90s annoyed the hell out of me every time it turned up on ITV. (laughs) It was a series of three adverts. A lot of people remember the first one, which is basically a bloke as a kind of cross between Terminator 2, because it was that era, and Simon Drake, the kind of post-industrial old magician that was on channel four a lot around then goes into a barber's and says give me the cybo razor cut and this kind of comedy barber kind of does sort of cyborgy things to instead of cutting his hair like you know attaches all kinds of cyberpunk things to his face and so on and it ends with a kid holding up a comic and saying give me the works to the barber none of which makes any sense the second one which less people remember was more or less the same but in a wild west setting where the hero kind of rides off with a girl on kind of a cyber horse at the end and the barber looks at the camera and goes how do you do that in a really annoying way. The third one had the barber doing a rap about getting a cyber razor cut. <laughs> None of which 
says anything about the Mega Drive itself, what the games are, what the playing is like. It's not, it's aimed at the exact group of the potential market share that have the least money easily pressed 11 <laughs> year olds i'm not going to be bought you know a mecha drive for christmas ironically a younger child might have been but that's at the age where it's kind of no you've got to have something sensible yeah and anyone older will be able to within reason afford one for themselves what were they doing what I mean, was that all about this is something that has baffled me because this isn't just sega that were guilty of this i don't know if anyone remembers the original adverts for the playstation 2 when it came out had the slogan welcome to the third place and it was about a guy getting stuck in a dimension with I think there was a like it was a a human sized duck that was wearing a suit or something like that advertising for video games has been very very weird for a very long time And it's only really in the sort of last maybe 10, 15 years that as games have got more mainstream, they've actually started advertising them like normal products, like actually describing the things that you're going to be buying. Instead of thinking, okay, this is an entirely new medium. We have no idea how to advertise this or how to market it. Shall we describe the product? No, let's make up some surrealism. You're trying to get people to embrace video games. That is not going to work. And I don't know, but then again, maybe that's when you know that video games have truly reached the mainstream because how many times have you been in the cinema and you've seen an advert for a car and the only time you realize it's an advert for the car is when the car appears right at the end me and my friends like to play that game whenever we go to the cinema we like to play a game of guess what they're advertising because it's always going to be some car or some alcohol or something and it's never got anything to do with the rest of the advert maybe baffling adverts is just you know that's when you know they're mainstream maybe they were ahead of their time who knows the weird thing about the game gear was that it came with a couple of extra accessories as well like it came with a tv tuner which had one of those sort of extendable aid sticking out the top so you could actually try and watch television on it i don't know how successful it was because you know it's a tiny little thing on a tiny little screen and one of the things that i did actually get for it was a magnifying glass because the screen was so small you could actually get a magnifying sort of square <laughs> that screwed into the back of the console to make the screen bigger for you and i remember it really hurting my eyes because the glass in the magnifier wasn't that great so you're taking this already quite fuzzy pixelated screen and making it a much larger fuzzy pixelated screen and just i remember trying to maybe this is the reason why i got so car sick as a kid maybe i was trying to play the game gear through a fuzzy magnified lens while also gripping onto these massive battery packs that were in it while it was plugged into the car charger and then trying to play columns at the same time it's just yeah the more i think about it the more i think yeah the, just the whole thing was just ludicrous i mean i had a lot of good times with it but yeah it's quite funny looking back on now okay we've got to next choice now which is a computer game that i think he might have struggled a little less with hi so michaela you're a teacher if you mean professor yes i have a doctorate teachers are homely women who make minimum wage to keep the teenage boys off the streets during the day i am very intelligent and i'd rather talk about that i'm trying to sell my book okay that was a bit of phone in nonsense with k chat from grand theft auto vice city but david it's not the actual game that you wanted to bring up here no grand theft auto vice city came out on the playstation just around my 14th birthday it was on the ps2 and this game has influenced me more than almost any other i would say and it's not because it's led me to a life of crime i'll I'll get to more (laughs) of that later this game is set in 1986 in a sort of takeoff version of miami that's why vice city is based like miami vice and it's set in 1986 and when you get into a car in this game there are radio stations like you just mentioned one there k chat there are radio stations in this game and this was the very first grand theft auto game in the series to feature actual licensed music 
and it had basically a sort of dream 80s playlist. I remember listening to these songs and basically when I was 14, I had never heard a lot of these songs before and this game influenced what my musical taste would be for the next good few years of my life. This was before I got into Bon Jovi, before I got into any of that. I just remember turning on the radio and there were songs like Michael Jackson, Toto, Brian Adams, Foreigner, Lionel Richie, Motley Crue, Judas Priest, Ozzy Osbourne, Thomas Dolby, Blondie, Tears for Fears, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It was just, it was classic after classic after classic after classic. And shortly after playing through this game and realizing how good the music was, I looked online and saw that there was a soundtrack box set available, which cost £18. And I still to this day believe it is the best £18 I ever spent because it was seven CDs of all of these songs that basically influenced my musical tastes. I've expanded since then, thanks to the other Grand Theft Auto games that came out afterwards. But I was the kid in school that while every other kid was listening to Beyonce and Avril Lavigne and all these other new acts in 2003, I was there listening to REO Speedwagon and Squeeze and artists like that and going, these young people don't know what good music is. <laughs> I, it, it turned me into a proper 80s kid and it did something that I didn't think was possible. It made me nostalgic for an era that I never knew. And people talk about Grand Theft Auto being a bad influence, about how, you know, it's going to cause kids to go out and steal cars. Grand Theft Auto didn't make me want to go out and steal a car. It made me want to go out and buy a Brian Adams album. And I'll leave your listeners to decide which is worse. <laughs> But the CD box set had exclusive content on it as well that you could only get by buying the CD. Sadly, it did not have the talk radio shows because KChat, like you mentioned, and the other one, VCPR, which is kind of the NPR parody on there where they have guests on to talk about political issues. And at the time, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard. Listening back to it now, it's not as funny because so many of the things it was parodying have since become true. Grand Theft Auto has always had sort of fantastic, it, it captures a parody of America fantastically and if you go and listen to Grand Theft Auto 3's Chatterbox or anything like that when you get people calling in going guns don't kill people death kills people and things like that some of the sort of pastiches that they have in that game they really capture the atmosphere of what it was like to be in 1980s Miami so perfectly I've completely got sidetracked yeah the exclusive content on the CD each of the radio stations has a DJ each of the DJs has their own sort of character they have their own sort of comments that they say between each songs you get exclusive content about these exclusive jokes from these DJs, these characters and some of them even have exclusive songs that didn't make it into the game. Like I think Hold the Line by Toto is on the pop radio station and that didn't make it into Vice City so it was just, it was more songs for you to listen to and yeah, it's probably influenced my life more than any other video game I've ever played. Well I'm wondering what you made of the disc that actually looked the most interesting to me, which is Disc 7 which is Radio Espantoso which yes. is a Latin jazz thing that's full of like Lonnie Liston Smith Mongo Santa Maria, Javier Cougat, Tito, Tito Puente, who people will probably know from The Simpsons. Yeah, that's where I knew him from. <laughs> but yeah. That to me, I was looking at that thinking, that looks brilliant, but given the directions you've indicated from the other discs, what did you make of it? I thought it was great. I mean, to begin with, because I knew, like I recognised some of the names on the other, like Michael Jackson is in there a couple of times. And actually, when you first get into a car, they wanted to immerse you in 1986. So the first time you get into a car, the very first song that plays on the radio is Billie Jean. And just to take you straight back into the 80s, you hear a lot of the Espantoso tracks because you, you spend a lot of time working with sort of Cuban gangs and things like that as part of the story. So you hear a lot of the tracks. And 
And I thought it was great. I mean, obviously, I liked the pop tracks and things like that a bit better because I could ask my parents about them and, and they didn't know anything about Tito Puente. I gave it a couple of listens, but I'm not going to lie. I spent a lot more time listening to the power ballads radio station, the rock station, the pop station. Yeah, and for a long time, when I started going to gigs, I had a list of artists from GTA Vice City that I would tick off and try and see as many as I could. I think the last one I saw was actually REO Speedwagon. I think they finally came to the UK a couple of years ago. But I've, I've been sort of trying to see as many of these artists as I can just to sort of complete the set, you know? Well, one thing I'm really aware of is I've never been that much of a GTA player. I'll be honest about that. But I am aware that the soundtrack's a big deal because every so often there will be excitement about the fact that in amongst all the big hitters that they always included, there would always be something that had been a really cult track like the Jackson Sisters, like I think one of Bridget Bardot's songs turned up on one of the soundtracks. And it was always, you know, people were excited that these kind of, you know, Spotify and things have changed everything now. But in those days, you know, things were a bit more secret. Even in the age of file sharing, things were passed around, you know, in the same way they would have been on tapes yeah. way back when. And it was always quite exciting that GTA had brought, you know, these brilliant pieces of music to a bigger audience. And that's really what Disc 7 a bit like in this. But I think there were a couple of other obscurities hidden away on they aren't there? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of people that when I... Because there are some huge tracks in here and there are quite a few sort of one-hit wonders as well. I mean, one of my favourite tracks from the pop album is uh, Call Me by Go West is on there. And then, yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got Flock of Seagulls, you've got Romeo Void is on there. And then, you, yeah, you've got like, you've got the Funk Station with people like Fat Laddie's Band, the Pointer Sisters, Oliver Cheatham. And then there's the Hip Hop Station as well with stuff like uh, Grandmaster Flash and Run DMC and things like that. So it's, it's a whole range of genres. Did you ever actually listen to the discs while you were playing the game and like turn the sound off and curate your own <laughs> version of the soundtrack? Yes, I can't quite see how that would work. No, I didn't. I mean, the soundtrack was mainly... Normally what I'd do is I'd play other video games and then pretend that they had the radio stations on them as well. When you listen to it in-game, it is, it's a single track of... like It is a radio show, basically. It's about... There's something like between 10 and 15 tracks on each radio station and it is, it's got the DJs playing in. It's got fake adverts as well, which are often really funny. Like they had a parody of an advert. It was like a Miami Vice type cop show, except it was called Yuppie and the Alien. <laughs> And one of the two was an actual alien. And then they'd have adverts for video games where it'd say, you're playing Save the Monkeys, where you're playing as this red square. There's a swinging from green dot to green dot. You get this sort of experience of it. And actually, I have actually downloaded, I ripped from the PS2 disc, I ripped the actual audio files of the radio stations because part of the nostalgia for me was hearing the DJs introduce the songs and introduce sort of, you know, She Sells Sanctuary by the cult or Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood or something like that and hearing them introduce it and saying this is by Trevor Horn and things like that just added to the experience of it I thought Well it is fascinating how quickly and how far game soundtracks developed from the days when I've mentioned it here before I had the Platoon game on the ZX Spectrum which came with a second tape that had Tracks of My Tears by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles on it on both <laughs> sides and you're supposed to just play it again and again while you're playing what wasn't really a very playable game based on Platoon and there were things like there was Soft Aid, which is a compilation of Spectrum games, raising money for Band-Aid, which had Do They Know It's Christmas at the start of the day. <laughs> the work that went into these things, because I know that very early on there was a London GTA. There and was, like, yeah. They actually got the guys who did the sound gallery compilations in the 90s, which started the whole lounge easy listening boom. They got them in to curate the soundtracks for them. And it's always taken very seriously. And I imagine it probably really enhances the mood of the games it absolutely does and you hear a lot of people particularly the game that immediately followed this 
which was San Andreas, which was set in early 90s Los Angeles. And so it has a lot of grunge, a lot of hip hop, but also things like it's got country and Western on there. So you've got things like Hank Williams. And again, just completely different from 80s Miami. But at the same time, whenever I go on music videos on YouTube and you look at the comments, people go, I remember this from GTA. You know, there's just there are whole new generations of people playing these games and listening to these music and falling in love with these artists that they probably wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. And I just I love that that's that they take the time, the developers take the time to choose the tracks that they think will best fit the era that these games are played in. And kind of what we were going back to with music licensing and people taking things down and not getting re-released, because there was actually a prequel to Vice City that came out a few years later called Vice City Stories, which was exactly the same. It had a carefully curated 80s soundtrack and actually Phil Collins appears in the game as a real like character voice. <laughs> Like he vo- he's actually playing himself. There's like an in-game performance of him doing In the Air Tonight and you have to rescue him from a stalker in one of the missions. <laughs> but the thing is, I don't know what licensing his likeness was like and I don't know what licensing the music was like, but Vice City has been re-released a couple of times over the years, including a really poorly received remaster just before Christmas there. And over the years, they've had to remove more and more of the songs from the soundtrack because the licenses have expired and they're too expensive to get back. So... Like a lot, obviously Michael Jackson is no longer on there, but things like they've lost Lionel Richie, they've lost Ozzy Osbourne. Slowly they are losing all like the biggest names from the soundtrack, and so it's kind of if you don't have the original game from 2002, you don't really have the full experience. And the prequel Vice City Stories has never been re-released. It's never been the soundtrack has never been released, and the game has never been re-released. And it's the, the only Grand Theft Auto game from that era that has never seen a re-release. So all the songs that I discovered from there, like there's a lot of Pat Benatar are on there there's a lot of sort of old 80s hair metal bands like uh, like Dokken are on there again it's another sort of snapshot of gaming culture and everything like that that just we're losing because of copyright and because of licensing and because it's not financially viable for these companies to maintain them and sustain them and make them available to the people that love them okay well sidestepping the question mark over copyright infringement if the Grand Theft Auto games had actually pushed you towards a life of crime I would have hoped they wouldn't have sent this guy after you Police Squad, in color. Starring Leslie Nielsen. Also starring Alan North. And Rex Hamilton as Abraham Lincoln. Tonight's special guest star, Lorne Green. Tonight's episode, The Broken Promise. Okay, that's the intro, unmistakably, if you know what it is, from Police Squad. David, I love this series. Tell us what it was. Police Squad is the very short-lived, tragically short-lived prequel to the uh, Naked Gun series of films. So it was made by the creative team of Zucker, Abrams and Zucker, who did Airplane, which I think statistically is, in terms of jokes per minute, is the funniest film ever made. I think someone did the study on that. And they decided to do that sort of police detective show of the kind that you saw a lot of, the sort of Magnum P.I 
nice they all kind of show and they got Leslie Nielsen in as Detective Frank Drebin or Lieutenant Frank Drebin I can't remember which one he is and this is the first time this character appears and he obviously then went on to appear in three Naked Gun films but the main reason that that happened is because Police Squad went on the air and then was cancelled after only six episodes this is possibly I mean I think Firefly fans might argue otherwise but I think this is possibly the worst mistake that TV executives have ever made in terms of cancelling a show because this show is fantastic the jokes are as rapid fire as you would expect from the people that made Airplane and there's very little else out there like it really I mean the only couple of things I can think of that have done television shows in this style I mean Charlie Brooker did A Touch of Cloth which was superb and then in America they've done Angie Tribeca in the same style which again is a police procedural kind of show i haven't actually seen it but it's from what i understand it is very much in the sort of police squad style the jokes that fly in police squad are just superb i mean just straight off the head the ones that come to mind for me a lot there are two that always come around twitter whenever i see them and the, the first one is frank drebin walking into a room and the guy says who are you and how did you get in here and he goes I'm a locksmith and I'm a locksmith. And the other one, there's a whole, like, I would particularly say the first episode, I think, is the strongest. Obviously, it's the pilot. They wanted to start with a bang. But there's one particular line where they go to see a man's been murdered and they go and visit his wife. And Frank Drebin goes, I'm sorry we're here so late, Mrs. Twice. We would have called earlier, but your husband was dead then. And it's, it's just full of those kind of lines. There's so much surrealism. And my favourite sort of thing that the whole show does is they do the freeze frame at the end of the series, but they're not actually freeze framing. They're just holding very still and different things will happen in each episode. Like sometimes the criminal that they've captured will break free and escape. Sometimes he'll be pouring a pot of coffee and the cup will overrun and burn the guy's hand. Oh, it's just, I love this so much. What was even funnier about the freeze frames was that at the end of shows, America American shows from around that time, you did get kind of a really bad freeze frame under the end credits where, because it was so badly done, it was almost wobbling while you looked at it. And we used to say, I'm sure they moved just then. <laughs> and the other thing was, because it had been, you know, converted from American format, it looked more smeary and wobbly just anyway. So these things might as well have moved. And it did take a couple of seconds when I first saw Police Squad to think, oh, hang on, this is actually moving. It's not <laughs> imagination based on distortion. But there's a very interesting thing related to, there are two other things that I can think of that are kind of in this vein, which is possibly the original inspiration i don't know maybe they heard this through the beatles connection and so on but do you know big shot by the bonzo dog doodah band again i've heard the name it's a late 60s track where you know it's like stereotypical film noir detective music and viv stanshaw does a monologue basically of police squad style jokes about being a hard-bitten detective that then feeds into have you ever seen jerry anderson series dick spanner no i haven't from the mid 80s which is one of the best things he's ever done one of the least known where it's kind of it's about a robot detective in the near future and it's like police squad every frame has visual and verbal gags in it you don't notice all of them straight away but the weird thing was police squad was on in america in 1982 apparently some itv region showed a couple of episodes late at night in 1983 but certainly i never saw it jerry anderson hadn't seen it but he'd heard big shot and he'd seen airplane and thought wouldn't it be great to do a whole animated series based on that but with a detective instead of the airplane crew so he essentially <laughs> had the same idea as them without realizing that they'd done it and then later on weirdly in the interim he did some adverts for tenants pilsner with viv stanchall basically voicing a puppet that was almost dick spanner but not quite bbc2 showed police squad in 1989 
nine after the naked gun had come out and been a success because basically the situation was that you know it was cancelled and the president of abc from what i can gather more or less said i've cancelled it because it is too funny and he thought it might upset people genuinely that's the tenor of his statement and they particularly leslie nielsen encouraged him and said there's more to this but it's going to work better as a film and he was right because i remember i went to see the naked gun nobody knew what it was because then yeah, we didn't know what even though it was builders from the files of police squad it was like yeah what's that and i had i don't know how i view it now but you know it was hysterics right the way throughout that film i still laugh when i think now a bits like the baseball bloopers where it's you no know, people being attacked by tigers and so on <laughs> and the bit where they're having that montage to i'm into something good by herman's hermit and it flashes up a credit saying it's available on the soundtrack <laughs> <laughs> things like that it was it felt new at that point it felt fresh it felt energetic and then to find out because that's when people started saying oh yeah that's that police squad thing that we got out of the video shop because it had come out on video for rental yeah so obviously they were thinking ahead in terms of the film coming out and then afterwards it was like people were desperate to see police squad and it turns off on bbc2 and it was so funny i think it's actually better than the films as i always think of things like there's that great gag in the opening titles where they have a guest star introduced there's always somebody like robert goulet yes. william shatner florence henderson lawn green william conrad who was canon they all come on and they're killed straight away and the story about they shot one with john belushi where he's thrown into the river weighed down with weights and then he died before it was broadcast and they were like we can't show that <laughs> oh there's so much good stuff the, in the it. title on screen of the episode doesn't match what the announcer says yeah so. yeah. yeah oh i remember thinking that and thinking wow that, i'm surprised they didn't fix that mistake <laughs> It's really interesting because the thing is, it's just struck me there that when you said it was broadcast on the BBC, that obviously we are used to comedy shows only running for six episodes. So it mustn't have come across as that strange because obviously when you think about American sitcoms, you think about them doing 22 episodes in a season. So if it gets cancelled after six episodes, that's, you know, a tragedy. But to us, that's just a sitcom. That's a really interesting thought. But also it must have been really interesting watching Police Squad after watching The Naked Gun because in Police Squad, Frank Drebin is actually a very competent police officer and in the naked gun he is this bumbling fool that manages to solve the crime almost in spite of himself that must have been really interesting to watch them sort of back to back because like in one of the episodes of police squad he goes undercover as like a boxing manager or a boxing promoter and plays poker against some gangster types and things like that and he's really really good at what he does while also cracking jokes and sort of uh, having prat falls and things like that but yeah oh it's so brilliant it's absolutely brilliant yeah the, the guest stars dying i love it so much and the shoeshine guy who as well as giving frank drebin loads of information about the underworld yeah. shouts out advice to people like structural engineers on their jobs yeah. he gives advice to frank on what he's heard but then like surgeons will come up and say how do you how do you perform a heart transplant priests will come up and say is there a god and things like that and he gives them all these he's basically this all-seeing all-knowing individual yeah they've got running gags going between each episode the sort of there's like a q figure the, the scientist the forensic scientist that works in the lab and sort of like he determines if a bullet was fired from a gun by shooting it into a line of videotapes. He has like a young boy with him who's showing like how to fire a gun and things like that and what a grisly murder looks like. Oh, there's just, there's so many running gags. Yeah, and I am kind of glad that there have been spiritual successes, things like A Touch of Cloth, which I think is just I was going superb. to say, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's been a little bit forgotten now. But that was so, everything about it was so inventive to the extent that 
I hadn't realised it was going to be a third series of it. So, you know, in series three, Saran Jones is replaced by Karen Gillan as DC New Blood. Yeah. When they showed the trailer for that, I thought that was just a joke on replacing it with another pretty up-and-coming young actress. Yeah. I was having hysterics thinking, that's a brilliant gag. And then she's actually, it was so funny and so sharp, so constantly evolving, that I have mistaken that for a joke about the format. I mean, it's the sort of thing they would do, isn't it? You know, it's, the, it's the closest that we have to a British police squad because you have Angie Tribeca for a modern American audience, but we didn't really have anything like that until Touch of Cloth came along. And it's just, yeah, it, it's amazing. I, I want to watch them again, actually. They're all brilliant. Okay, well, at the same time as BBC Two, we finally got around to showing Police Squad. They were showing the Tracy Ullman show, which, contrary to popular belief, at least twice had a certain thing in it, which people claim was always cut out of the UK showings. Anyway, that's a long preamble to getting around to this clip and your next choice. Hey Bart, want to trade lunches? No way, dude. I got each of the four food groups. Sandwich group, cow group, jungle group, Butterfinger group. Hey, there's no Butterfinger group. Oh, contraire, mon frere. The Butterfinger group provides the crunchy peanut butter and chocolatey taste essential for survival. I don't have the Butterfinger group. Looks like you could die of malnutrition, dude. Peanut buttery Butterfinger. It's neato. <laughs> and it's neato. Okay, from 1988, that's Bart Simpson and Milhouse advertising Butterfinger. And the reason I've chosen this, David, is because you've picked something that harks back to a very different incarnation of The Simpsons. Yes, I'm talking about Bart Simpson's Guide to Life, which was a sort of kid's book that came out. I think it came out in about 93, 94. It was from the early sort of Simpsons era in which Bart was the star of the show and it was all about how controversial he was and things like that. And this book, which I actually I didn't read until quite a few years later I think I was reading it in about 2002 2003 but it is full of sort of guides on what to do just to be like Bart Simpson in terms of like forging sick notes to get out of school ways to annoy your teacher by asking awkward questions ways to sort of cause mess in the house and things like that and it's just it's about it's it's a big book it's about 200 pages and it's I mean it says it's written by Matt Groening I think it was written by a team of writers and Matt Groening stuck his name on it like he does yeah, with everything Simpsons related most written by people who weren't involved with The Simpsons apart from Bill Morrison who was involved with the comics but yeah I think it really shows that it's like all the things you mentioned Bart doesn't really do even in the early days yeah I'm flicking through it now I've got my copy here and yeah I mean the different sections in the book you've got school food health and fitness work and money after hours parents art and culture I mean Bart Simpson talking about arts and culture science language and communication animals sex psychology law and order Christmas strange facts religion and they're all just it's all full of it's kind of a mix of like fun facts and like interesting information and then you do get like how to say Bart Simpson's catchphrases in different languages and things like that the main reason I brought it up is because it is related to a story of when I was in school because we had a teacher I must have been in about third year so I would have been in maybe maybe 13 14 something like this and we had an english teacher who insisted that we had to spend an hour of every week reading in class in silence and at the end of the hour we had to write down a word from the book that we were reading that we had never seen before and that we had learned and i couldn't be arsed with this i didn't want to spend an hour reading some random book so i would bring in bart simpson's guide to life every week for about three months 
And when they asked for a word that you learned from the end of it, there is a page in this, I think it's in the languages section, there is a page in this about phobias. And every single week, I would simply turn to the phobias page and write down a different phobia and say, that's the word I've learned this week. And I would hand that in. And I kept this up for like two or three months. There are like 50 different phobias in here. I'm thinking I could do this all year. But then I started getting a bit cocky they give you a whole list there's a whole bunch of phobias in here and then there is a sort of glossary of greek terms that you can use in phobias so you've got things like pagano is fear of beers and things like that and i found the word didacto which means to teach in greek so i wrote down didactophobia as my word of the week being fear of teaching and i thought maybe i'll just troll the teacher a little bit unfortunately i then did one of the stupidest things i've ever done which is look at the top of the list and see like it would have the greek word on the left and the english word on the right so it would have like aero air biblio book things like that and at the very top of the page i saw the words greek english and i for some reason i don't know why it's one of the stupidest things i've ever done i thought that the word for english in greek was greek seriously i wrote down as my word the following week the fear of teaching english didacto greekophobia that was when the gig was up. That was when my teacher went, yeah, that's not a real word. You've got to find a different book. That's my main memory of reading Bart Simpson's Guide to Life. I used to, I was glued to this book as a kid, sort of a, like an 11, 12 year old. And it's got like fake Christmas carols in it. It's got different things they can do. Like if you get in trouble, different excuses you can come up with with your parents and things like that. Museum etiquette, things that you can do, things like museum etiquette, climb inside a dinosaur skeleton and pretend you're a prisoner of the museum. Annoying questions to ask your teacher. How do we know the sky isn't really green and we're all just colorblind it's full of like ways to mess with the world a little bit and <laughs> it was sort of like a, a the kid pranksters bible in a way and as you can see i tried using it for one of my own pranks and it backfired a little bit because i went too far but yeah that's my main memory of bart simpson's guide to life well i think one of the reasons that it's not really been remembered that well i think there's two reasons why it doesn't quite work as a comedy book one is it belongs to that initial vision they had of the simpsons where they weren't really sure what they were doing they were kind of trying to do not just a family friendly show a family show full stop trying to appeal to everyone that wants and bart was the naughty loose cannon that the young children would like and it didn't quite never quite work things like simpsons sing the blues are still rooted in that as well by the time this came out the show itself was a bit more like the simpsons as we know it but this felt like maybe like a throwback to, you know, the first series. And I wonder if it'd been sat around on the shelf for a while. Well, just looking at the book, I noticed it was first published in America in 1993. And it didn't make it over here, possibly because of localization or publishing or something. But um, it didn't make it over here until 1996 by which time The Simpsons would have been well into its sixth or seventh series, by which point kind of Homer had taken centre stage and Bart as the sort of star of the show, as the sort of the bad boy, the controversial, had kind of fallen by the wayside. But I mean, there was still a load of appetite for The Simpsons. You know, like you had that triple whammy on BBC Two of The Simpsons, Robot Wars and Red Dwarf. And so like people were still obsessed with The Simpsons and you could still buy all the merchandise. And so I imagine it did pretty well. I know a lot of people read the book as a kid, certainly, yeah. Well, I I think the other problem with it slightly is that i mean it has a format in the sense that it's bart simpson's guide to life but the actual contents are just one thing then another thing then another thing and comedy books that do that i'm looking at you here the hail and pace book of rights and wrongs <laughs> literally looking at it or things like the a to z of men behaving badly and so on, where they don't have a kind of for want of a better word a narrative behind it it gets a bit much after a while because i think the ones that really work are things like you know the monty python books they just wanted to mess with 
with the whole idea of a book existing. You know, that, yeah. is it like a Brian one where they say you can increase the value of the book by we would have to pay more to have a hole cut in the middle of this page? <laughs> <and> <laughs> like, things like that. There's the Fist of Fun one, which I still think is the funniest book ever. I say written, a lot of it is visual, but the conceit of that is that Rich and Stu have to do a book. Yeah. And they're just desperate to put content in. It works because of that. The Adam and Joe book is kind of similar to that. And I would say Bart Simpson's Guide to Life contrasts really badly with... There were a couple of Beavers and Butthead books around this time, which Mike Judge actually wrote... And each one of them has a format. Like, my favourite was always the Encyclopedia, which is Beavis and Butthead Encyclopedia, where they explain things like the pyramids. And you can read that straight through as an experience because it is about them trying to learn about concepts they are never going to understand. <laughs> and I always remember things in there, like there's a very long explanation of how eventually mankind will have to leave the Earth and colonise other planets. You know, this will take maybe about 100 years or something. <laughs> and then when that happens, me and Beavis are going to go and live on the moon and not have to go to school. Sometimes we're not so dumb as people think. <laughs> and things like the Mr. Bean book, where I'm not a great fan of Mr. Bean, but they recognise in that, that he's quite a horrible person, really. He's basically a stalker. You know, <laughs> the book is predicated on that. You know, it's not a funny laugh-along thing with the people like it when Rowan Atkinson does a rubbery face. And so I think Bart Simpson's Guide to Life just doesn't... It exists on the idea that, as you said, people like Bart and that's enough yeah you can tell that it's sort of there is no coherent it, it, it's a whole bunch of sort of it's a mix of trivia it's a mix of little funny bits and it does feel like they've just taken sort of 200 ideas and thrown them in a book and there isn't really any sort of cohesion behind it they've just got sort of 10 or 12 different subjects and just said give us your best stuff and it is things like how to drive your parents nuts if you see yourself in a dream it means this how to negotiate a decent allowance things like that you know it's just sort of things that children might want to think about like just aspects of children's life and then sort of just written a bunch of jokes around those yeah but I mean I have to say I was the perfect age for it so I enjoyed it quite a lot okay we're moving on to your last choice now and whereas Bart Simpson was all about making money for other people this is somebody who in some ways was a contemporary of his I'm stretching chronology a little bit there but you'll see why in a minute he was all about making money for himself the ancient pyramid of Kalibaba where a fabulous treasure has lay hidden for centuries. A treasure sought by a ruthless sorcerer. A treasure whose incredible mysteries are about to be uncovered. Jumpstart my heart! By six daring adventurers. I finally found it! But finding the fortune is only the beginning. Of a powerful secret. That will lead to unbelievable magic. I wish for the treasure of Kali Baba. Give it to me. That will become one unforgettable adventure. I'd sure like to know where this leads. It's your favorite DuckTales friends in their first full-length big-screen motion picture. A story filled with excitement. Danger. Surprises. Is there a doctor in the pyramid? And fun. It's easy for you to say. It's a movie so big, so special, so exciting. No TV can hold it. DuckTales the movie. Treasure of the Lost Lamp.
Okay, the trailer for DuckTales the movie Treasure of the Lost Lump. I think that pretty much explains itself, David. So why has nobody ever seen this? I'm not sure why no one's ever seen it, but anytime I recommend it to people, they always think it's brilliant. This was the DuckTales movie that came out in about 1990. This was when the DuckTales cartoon was on the television. And uh, I have to say, I haven't seen any of the DuckTales cartoon. This is the only <laughs> thing I've ever seen. <laughs> And I just, I've, I've seen this film dozens of times. I've never seen a single episode of DuckTales, but I love this film so much. This film is basically like a crossover between Indiana Jones and Aladdin. Scrooge McDuck is on the hunt for the treasure of Kali Baba. The entire sort of first sort of 15, 20 minutes of the film is classic Indiana Jones. In fact, the logo for the film is just a straight up ripoff of the Indiana Jones logo. But this film is one of those films that as a kid that I remember absolutely loving and no one else I know had ever heard of it because it came out around the same time as the Disney Renaissance, so Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and Aladdin were all coming out around this time. And because this was a movie TV spin-off, it didn't do as well and it isn't as remembered as I think some of the other ones that you know made a bigger splash. And it's a shame because I think this is a superb children's film. And as someone who I hadn't seen any Indiana Jones when this film came out, I thought, as far as I was concerned, Indiana Jones was a ripoff of DuckTales the movie. But the first 20 minutes is this brilliant scene of them plundering a pyramid and then they find this magic lamp and take it home and it turns out there's a genie inside and they have all this sort of hijinks ensue as TV summaries like to say. And yeah, I just remember it being absolutely brilliant and it has, in my mind, the greatest final line of any film I've ever seen, which is Scrooge McDuck simply yelling, somebody stop those pants. <laughs> I'm going to leave it out of context. You have to go and watch the film to understand what's going on. But yeah, I think this film is brilliant. It's possibly my favorite Disney movie, although Basil the Great Mouse Detective is up there as well. It is on Disney Plus and I highly recommend if you want something for your kids, go and watch it. It's a brilliant, brilliant film. And this is coming from someone that has seen not a single second of any other DuckTales. Well, I've watched it now and I really enjoyed it. And I didn't really watch much DuckTales at the time because I was a bit old for it. But I remember it being on. I remember that being, you know, really popular. But I didn't even know there'd been a film. But I'm not surprised it didn't do that well. Because like you say, it was a little bit different. And this was at a time, it's weird to think of when you think of what a megalith Disney is. In the late 80s, early 90s, like you say, there was the renaissance with things like Beauty and the Beast. But that was all people seemed to want. It was kind of, give us the Disney we can call a classic, please. And I can back that up. Because, you know, around this time, you got all things like they did all loads of TV shows that didn't really take off this didn't Muppet Christmas Carol you think of how revered that is now I remember when that was out it was kind of like it was just oh yeah it's a Muppet film that's out nobody was talking about how brilliant it is I mean it was I loved it when I went to see it but they just didn't have that foothold because people were trying to tell them stick to what you do best and I can back that up with there used to be I mean there is now one again but there was originally in the early 90s a Disney store in Liverpool where when I was a student probably looking for extra money to afford the Have I Got News For You book (laughs) I actually when it opened went to an interview to be staffed there and apparently the reason I failed was they thought I was confident they thought it was funny they thought you know it was engaging the thing was it was a question what is your favourite Disney thing and being honest and truthful I said well you know the older films like The Cat from Outer Space and so on and (laughs) The Black Hole I love and they said the answer has always got to be the thing that is coming out next so if you had said The Lion King we'd be giving you a job right now but we're not allowed to that was what they were geared towards I think it's a mixture of public tediousness and Disney themselves not having the confidence, you know, to really get behind stuff that was outside of that. 
as well. I mean, oh, that's that's a terrible reason for rejecting someone from a job. Just tell them what to say. <laughs> oh. And to this day, I've not seen The Lion King. Genuinely, a couple of years later, I was in HMV. There was a huge queue of people waiting for a video release. I assume it must have been on sale at 11am that morning or something, of a standalone Timon and Pumbaa thing. And I was thinking... Who are they? Nobody yeah. knows who they are. What madness is this? What do you mean? I'll just They're... go and buy the Stereo Lab album. Everyone knows who they are. <laughs> Timon and Pumbaa, the stars of Lion King One and a Half, or Lion King Three, as I think it's called somewhere else. But yeah, you, have you really never seen the Lion King? That's impressive. Out of petulance, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one thing that you haven't mentioned so far about Ducktales, I thought you were getting with straight away. You might be ahead of me now. Is there might be people listening who don't know Ducktales, the Adventures of Scrooge McDonald and Huey, Louie and Dewey, basically while people are trying to steal Scrooge McDuck's money and they protect him. Where have you seen DuckTales recently? It's weird thinking about it because Scrooge McDuck is like one of the few likeable billionaires. I wasn't thinking of real life. Where have you literally seen DuckTales recently? I mean, they they rebooted it, didn't they, with David (laughs) Tennant? I remember that. You're just not anywhere near it. You're going to kick yourself when I tell you this. You know, there's a film called Black Widow. Oh, yeah. no. the opening credits, it shows all the widows being trained as young girls. Yes. Oh, they are I, watching Ducktales and drinking yeah. some unidentified soda out of big cups. Oh uh, yeah, no, that was that was my main takeaway from Black Widow was that uh, it was Ducktales. <laughs> yeah, Ducktales and Moonraker are the only two things I remember from Black Widow. I just hope Moonraker is actually be made along Richard Herring's specifications and form, <laughs> which is literally what a man who rakes them. <laughs> and there is also the chance now that Disney, it's all very complicated, but they do technically own TBS, the old ITV company, which means that they could put catchphrase Daffro Sketchpad and all glued up on there. I would love that to be recommended to someone who's watching The Mandalorian, just Bobby Daffro's face coming up. You've got to trust the algorithm. Always trust the algorithm. <laughs> I dreaded it what the algorithm is going to show for this episode. David, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much, Tim. Always a pleasure. Volume 2 by Tim Worthington, the story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes, from Play School Play On to Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of Burton that you ever knew it was possible to exist. More details, timworthington.org.